Hello, and welcome back to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubov, the Dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. A lot has changed in the past few weeks since we recorded our last episode. You've probably noticed we sound a little different. That's because we're calling in via phone now. Like many others, figuring out how to work remotely, we're keeping our distance in light of the spread of the novel coronavirus. Yes, we are in a new world. It's not necessarily one we wanted to be in, but here we are. And because of that, we're going to take a break of sorts with our regular season, which is about when law changed the world, to discuss this new place we're in. Of course, this pandemic is changing our world in many ways, and we're just starting to realize how many. But pandemics have also had a global impact many times in the past. The medieval plague, cholera, tuberculosis, the Spanish flu of 1918, HIV, the list is unfortunately long. Today, we'll be talking with UVA history professor Christian McMillan about pandemics of the past and what they say about our world today. He's the author of Discovering Tuberculosis, A Global History 1900 to the Present, and Pandemics, A Very Short Introduction. Christian, welcome to Common Law. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Christian, we're so pleased you could join us, and I'm sorry we couldn't meet together in person. Having written about past pandemics, did you ever think you would see one play out in real time? Uh, I, I, I wish I could say the answer is no, but I, I've always imagined it, not because I want to live through the history I write about, but just because I think you know most historians and, and other people who think about pandemics, epidemiologists, public health experts, um, I mean, if anything's predictable in world history, it's that another pandemic uh, was coming and now it's here. So uh, I'm not entirely surprised, though I'm disappointed. How did you start working on pandemics? So before I got into the history of, of medicine, I was, I had been working on American Indian history for a long time. And, and, you know, when you're working in American Indian history, it only takes about five or 10 minutes to realize how uh, severe infectious disease has been in American Indian history. And I, I just started getting fascinated by, you know, what that looked like long after uh, uh, the, the, early centuries of contact, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and how diseases were continuing to affect, epidemic disease in particular, infectious disease, were affecting American Indians into the 20th century, which is really the, the period I've mostly worked on. And um, it turned out that, you know, diseases like tuberculosis, um, particularly others as well, were still, you know, infectious diseases were still the number one killers of American Indians all the way up through the 1960s. And, you know, I started seeing connections between the American Indian experience and that of, you know, colonized peoples elsewhere. Um, and, it, you know, as it goes in historical research, it's just cascading effect. Um, and it just kept going. So it was really my out of my interest and knowledge of American Indian history that I got into history of medicine. Is there a particular pandemic in the past that reminds you of what's happening today? Um, yeah, you know, I think the one that's probably coming to most people's minds and, and mine as well is the 1918 and then into 1919 influenza pandemic. But there are features of all, you know, I shouldn't say all pandemics, but many others that, you know, come to mind in terms of, you know, restrictions on movement or fear or, you know, governments um, handling things ineptly or whatever, you know, cholera in the 19th century in England in particular, Um so, yeah, the 1918 plague, uh, influenza, mostly because, well, first and foremost, perhaps because of its scope uh, and because of the rapidity with which it traveled the globe 
And unfortunately, because there was a first phase or wave in the spring of 1918, and we're in the spring of 2020, um, where it was severe um, and traveled fairly wide, but then died down in the summer and then came back in the fall. And that's where most of the um, mortality came, was in the fall of 1918. Um, so unfortunately, that's one of the things that... Um, you know, comes to mind, knowing that that was the case in 1918. Um, one hopes that won't be the case in 2020. When you think about the historical comparison, there's the comparison of the pandemic itself, and then there's the kind of comparison of institutions and, you know, mobility and communication. And I know a lot of your work is about how institutions have responded in good ways and not good ways. And uh, so when you think about the the economic, technological, institutional moment we're in. Do you, do you still see the comparisons to 1918? Or how do you think about where we are today compared to those other pandemics? I mean, one way in which it's broadly similar is, uh, you know, there is no such thing as a coordinated... Um, I mean, I suppose there's more coordination on the international level now than there, than there was in 1918 because we have the World Health Organization. Um, but, you know, the responses to influenza in 1918 were, um, you know, really local, like they are now, you know. So it's not like, you know, Italy, England, France, Germany, Switzerland, all did the same thing. They all operated differently, just like we're all doing now. You know, all 50 states in the United States operated differently. Um, you know, you could have a city like Pittsburgh respond one way and a city like Philadelphia respond another way. I mean, the point being is that there there wasn't then and there isn't really now a centralized way of responding to pandemics, uh, which I think is, um, you know, perhaps that will change after this. I, I have no idea, of course, but, um, you know, that's a really broad uh, similarity between the, the two. The other broad similarity that comes to mind is the sense in many places that this is just not a big deal early on, you know, that, you um, uh, you know, even though we can see great mortality in place A, I live in place B, and, you know, it looks like we're going to be just fine. Uh, it's just the cold, you know, or it's no worse than the than the, the normal annual influenza, which by 1918 was a regular feature of life as well. So the not taking it seriously initially, um, the and then the unfortunate other similarity, um, and there are, there are more, but our you know, governments, authorities, public health, not so much public health people, but, you know, um, not only not taking it seriously, but but restricting the flow of information um, and and not informing the public of really what was going on, you know, for maybe for some charitable reasons, but also uh, for similar reasons we're seeing now, just, uh, you know, wanting to cover up or not admit a lack of preparedness. Could you give us some examples about different local responses making a big difference? Back in 1918, I've heard anecdotes about decisions to hold World War I victory parades that had dire consequences. What did, it, what did the patchwork look like? Uh, you know, honestly, really similar to now. So you have New York City um, waiting weeks to start closing uh, public schools or, or restricting movement or closing movie theaters you have um, London doing the same thing, but Manchester acting 
more quickly. Um, you have Philadelphia taking a, quite a while to um, get up and running, but then you have San Francisco um, uh, having people wear masks, for example. Um, you have some cities closing schools while others didn't. So it's it's really all over the map. I mean, the examples of local responses are, I would say, as various um, then as they were now. I mean, you know, I don't want to be so to sound so overly critical and, and with 2020 hindsight, you know, we could all go back and tell people what to do. I mean, the, the, the speed with which the flu tore through the world in 1918, you know, we're up to, you know, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died in the course of two, two months, two and a half months. I mean, you know, no one's prepared for that. And no one um, could have imagined something like on a scale like that. So it's, it's less about, I mean, it is being critical of some of the sort of real head in the sand approaches, but it's, it's also indicative of just how fast moving it was that there was not so much time to prepare. I mean, you read these statements of people who are really cavalier about, about things and you think, you know, that was wrong, but, but not knowing exactly what to do um, is really quite forgivable. And I think that will be the same here, you know, now that no one could have imagined this would have, well, that's, that's not a fair statement. It's hard for many people to imagine something traveling this fast and this widespread um, and being this serious. None of us have ever lived through it before. Um, and so it's not surprising that there are local variances in, in response. Um, what's unfortunate about it is that, is that the, those local responses seem to range so greatly. You know, that the, I, I would like to think the band of responses really isn't actually as great as it is. You mentioned there being commonalities across pandemics, and you mentioned what a couple of those might be. What are the big commonalities that you tend to see in all pandemics? Other than mass death, I assume. Um, Leaving aside the actual pandemic. <laughs> right. Leaving maybe aside, my question is, what commonalities no, I know, I know. do we see in responses right, to right, pandemics? Right. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, yeah, I, I think the, uh, oh God, what are the, the most, some of them I, I mentioned, you know, this notion, um, this, this impulse, it seems, since at least, you know, cholera in the 19th century and, and perhaps sooner, but... Um, to either downplay, minimize, or or suppress information about um, the severity of a of a of an epidemic or a pandemic, um, since the nineteenth late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, there has been a um, a focus really on biomedical approaches to solving the problems of disease. You know, either a looking for a vaccine or b looking for a cure. And neither of those things are wrong. I mean, that would be ridiculous to suggest that, that we shouldn't look for vaccines or, or, or antibiotics. But you can see now, as coronavirus emerges, we have a president who is, you know, recklessly suggesting that a vaccine is coming soon and or a therapy is coming soon, you know, chloroquine, for example, Meanwhile, we see that there, is, there are severe problems with supply chain. There are severe problems with capacity for dealing with um, sick people in hospitals. There is no real public health infrastructure to deal with contact tracing. Um, there is not a coordinated national response. So all of these things that, you know, 
we know could work to mitigate the effects of a pandemic are basic public health measures that, that, that at least in the United States, we've largely let crumble, um, while at the same time, assuming and hoping that a, you know, a, a magic bullet will come to either A, give us immunity, or B, cure us. And that's really a function of, of you know, the century of medical breakthroughs that we have had in infectious disease. But you know, tuberculosis um, you know, has been able to be cured since the 1940s, and effect, really effectively since the late 1950s. Yet we now have more tuberculosis you know, than we've ever had in world history despite having a cure. And that's because, you know, the conditions that give rise to diseases like tuberculosis are, are all but ignored while focusing on, you know, biomedical interventions. And I think that mindset is, is common to the response to infectious diseases across the 20th century. And it, I think it's uh, in evidence today. I mean, all of these things like social distancing that we're trying to get people to do, self-isolation, all of this, these are features of epidemic responses since the 14th century, um, particularly across early modern Europe in almost every state in early modern Europe. These were the common ways of dealing with plague, um, particularly, and then reinstituted during um, cholera in the 19th century, the third plague pandemic in the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, but now with coronavirus, we've, um, you know, all but forgotten these measures. I mean, for good reason, in, in a way. I mean, why would we know about them? But, um, you know, I think it's it's been a real trade-off between having a robust public health infrastructure and um, and simply relying on, a you know, a magic bullet approach to how to deal with epidemic disease. This is, this is a kind of reverse question uh, of ones you've already answered, but I'm curious if it will, if it will yield different kinds of reflections, um, which are, are there lessons from these earlier pandemics that, that we could have taken, should have taken, you see us that we are taking, um, uh, to put it in a more kind of affirmative, positive way, right? What are those lessons? What do they look like? I guess, you know, I, I, I can't take credit for this because I read this in a, um, I read John Barry wrote this great book on the on the flu um, called The Great Influenza. I think uh, he may have had two great lessons from the past, um, but I'm only remembering one, um, which was for for people in power, politicians, etc., just to stop lying uh, and tell the truth is probably the greatest um, thing that we can learn from past pandemics. When people have told the truth, um, it's had the greatest effect on people's ability to behave in the right way in terms, you know, responding to pandemics in terms of, you know, being able to self-isolate or, or willfully go into quarantine or whatever. Um, so it strikes me that, you know, I agreed with him. That's probably the greatest thing we can take from all of these is to, is that, uh, is to stop lying and that people should listen to, um, experts. I mean, there's an erosion of faith and expertise that's been, um, you know, part of American culture anyway for some time now. And, and it strikes me that this is probably, the, in, at least in my lifetime, the most tragic example of that erosion. That leads into something that I wanted to ask about. How does the current situation compare with past situations in terms of information transmission, whether that's good information hmm. or misinformation? We certainly have a very different information culture and, and structures mm. than we used to. How does that play out? Well, that's a good question. Um, the thing that comes to mind really would be, 
is with cholera, for example, in the 19th century, there's extraordinary debate um, that really had real world consequences on, on how diseases were transmitted. You know, were they transmitted through uh, the air, miasma, you may have heard that phrase before, which just means bad air. Um, or were they trans or were diseases contagious and transferred from you know human to human or some by some other vector rather than just sort of the you know the the environment or bad air or you know miasma is often referred to you know rotting vegetable matter you know producing these gases that come up out of the ground and that's why you see cholera in some neighborhoods and not others um, and and the reason I'm focusing on it is that. For a long time after, it was really pretty clear based on a substantial amount of evidence that cholera was um, was caused by drinking infected water, you know, infected with the cholera vibrio. Um, you know, there was still a tremendous amount for another 30 to 40 years um, of, you know, misinformation and um uh, you know, medical opinion circulating that no, 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 contagion doesn't exist. It's really miasma, um, you know, to the point that one of the last cholera epidemics of the 19th century was in um, Hamburg, Germany, where the pub, you know, public health officials and thus the public believed in this theory of miasma and didn't take the same kinds of um, public health measures that many other cities across Europe had been had been taking in terms of you know providing clean water and, and so forth, um, and that strikes me as one of the more apt comparisons you know of, of misinformation, uh, uh, people in power simply adhering to the way they've always thought things they've always believed in in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Um, you know, I think that's sort of what we see now, really, is people um, calling this just, you know, a hoax against Donald Trump or, uh, you know, just the flu in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Um, that strikes me as potentially a historical analogy. Speaking of how people in power use their power, uh, two of our own professors, Mila Versteeg and Kevin Cope, recently surveyed Americans about their willingness to suspend typical constitutional rights, like the right to gather in houses of worship. And it turned out that the survey respondents were actually quite comfortable with restrictions being placed on those in the name of public health. So in past pandemics, how did people think about such restrictions? Um, yeah, so restrictions on, on movement and isolation and, and quarantine you know, have been features of epidemic the response to epidemic disease really since the Black Death in the 1340s. Um, probably most actively rolled out in Italy and then in England in the 16th century, early to mid-16th century. Um, you know, a whole host of, of restrictions on movement, uh, you know, public laws prohibiting gatherings like church ceremonies, um, keeping people in their houses. And, and then all the way through, um, you know, the end of the 19th century when the bubonic plague came back, particularly in the colonial world, um, really draconian measures of restriction, particularly in places like India, um, quarantine measures in places like Nigeria during the 1918 influenza pandemic. And so, you know, you have to, in each instance, you know, there's, there's a level of resistance to all of these measures, depending on the time and the place and the context. Uh, so for example, uh, one of my favorite little books that I have um, 
my classes read whenever I teach my epidemics class is a book called Fate, the Reason, and the Plague in, in um, 17th century Tuscany. And it's a little book that describes... So Italy, as I said, was one of the very first places that, that really um, developed what we would think of as a modern public health system um, of surveillance and public health hospitals and passing laws to restrict movement and so forth. And, um, and in, so in the 1630s, when plague came to this little town of Monte Lupo in, in rural Tuscany, um, the author of this book, Carlos Apola, uses it really quite brilliantly as a way to explore the conflict between faith, you know, and in the, the form of the church and then, you know, reason in the form of these public health magistrates that are trying to impose, um, public laws against gatherings. And, um, he, he uses this, this, this tiny little micro history. I mean, the book is very short itself and it's about this tiny little place, just a few hundred people where there's this really, you know, intimate battle between this public health official and the bishop of the town who believes that actually the best way to, to fight the plague is in fact to hold a mass um, because the plague is here as a sign of God's wrath. And um, if we don't have a mass, it'll just get worse. And, you know, so the public health official says, well, in fact, no, that's perhaps the craziest thing you could possibly imagine doing. Uh, we could possibly imagine doing. Um, and, it, and it results in this really significant conflict that it ultimately there's a, you know, a fair amount of rioting and resistance and, and people flee the town because they don't want to be under quarantine. They don't want to be isolated. So it results in a fair amount of of chaos. And, um, it's just an extraordinary story of, um, you know, what the state believes it needs to do, but the citizenry who is largely Catholic and faithful, uh, thinks it has to do. And then it's a, a story about, um, you know, the emerging power of the state over that of the church, which has always been the conventional measures uh, or, or, or arbiter of power. So that's one example. I mean, there's just a million examples of both resistance to state action and state action itself. So in India, in the, um, in the 1890s, when the plague came back in the Pacific world and largely affected the colonial world, in particular India, um, this is at a time when the, you know, the British government, uh, especially in, um, in the wake of the laboratory revolution, and, and very, very uh, confident in its measures to uh, stamp out infectious disease but really still doesn't have any idea about how plague itself is transmitted. And so kind of really approaches it um, in these draconian ways whereby, um, and this is the case in Hong Kong as well, the British government did the same thing there, um, you know, burning people's houses down, uh, taking people out of their houses and putting them in isolation, uh, strict quarantine measures um, that actually backfire to the extent that, you know, some public health officials are, you know, assassinated, it's one of the major crisis moments in British authority and in, in the colonial world, particularly in, in Hong Kong and India, you know, their, the state's response to, to plague, um, in, in the, um, in the colonial world during the flu pandemic, uh, both in, um, in Liberia and in, and in Nigeria, uh, significant, um, you know, state sponsored, uh, quarantine measures, result in, uh, you know, the early, the beginnings of um, uh, early anti-colonial movements because people are so um, angered and shocked at the um, 
draconian measures the state would take to to restrict movement and to isolate people and to you know separate women from men to um, bar funeral practices. I mean, so yeah, this is a huge feature of of the history of epidemic disease. So, so that we don't end in such a dark place, are there any hopeful notes you can bring or any guidance you can bring um, on what we should focus on today to help us all get through this? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned this, this um, the way in which, you know, people have perhaps over relied on, on magic bullets over the last century or so, a little more than that, um, and have always you know, since the laboratory revolution, especially since this so-called, you know, golden age of medicine in the 50s, 60s, and 70s have over-relied on, on magic bullets. Uh, I mean, there's good reason for that in, in many respects. I mean, it's unfortunate in its effects on the diminishment of, of public health infrastructure, but what's good about it, in fact, is that we actually have a significant, we've made significant progress on creating vaccines and creating therapies for infectious disease. So, it's unfortunate that we're over-reliant, but it doesn't at the same time mean that we won't in fact develop a therapy or a vaccine. Um, you know, one of the great stories in the newspaper today was um, how scientists around the world, more so than perhaps any other time, uh, have been collaborating and not competing with one another. Not that there's a tremendous amount of competition necessarily in this realm of of public health, but that the level of cooperation and collaboration and um, and goodwill among scientists, no matter where they're from, no matter what country they're from, no matter how high you know their infection rates are, mortality are, they're collectively um, working to find a vaccine and potentially therapies. Um, and that, I mean, that's unbelievably encouraging. And I think that you know earlier, Leslie, you asked about the you know, the different forms of communication we have now, how rapidly communication circulates around the world. I mean, this is one of the good effects of, you know, the way in which we can be connected is that scientists can work across national boundaries, time zones, et cetera, um, to try and combat something like this. And that, that, you know, collaboration across national boundaries in terms of scientific research has been a feature of global health for, for decades. But the, the speed with which it can happen now and the, and the, um, what I gather is the spirit of collaboration that's going on now um, strikes me as unprecedented. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, the results will be rapid and, um, and accessible for everyone. I mean, that's one of the great things about it not being a national effort is that um, by making it an American-only effort, uh, you know, it's, it's not... Um, that means the therapies or the vaccines that will be available will be available accessibly to all rather than... Um, nationally based, which would be clearly a tragedy because if nothing else, I think this should teach us that boundaries and borders and so forth are completely meaningless to microbes. Thank you so much for this conversation, Christian. It has been so enlightening and, uh, and we really thank you for joining us. Well, that was really interesting. And Risa, you're a historian, so I assume that you know everything about history. That's just always my starting assumption. But Christian just told us a lot of things that I did not know about the history of pandemics. And 
it's it just really is interesting to think about what we're going through right now in that historical context. I agree, and I I appreciate the 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 compliment, but it is utterly not true. And I learned so much from Christian just now, and I will say that one of the things that I found most striking about. Uh, what he had to say was that the similarities between those pastimes and this one seemed to come out much more clearly from him than the dissimilarities. And I think we were both in our own ways trying to push on where the dissimilarities might be in transportation and how quickly things would spread in, in communication in the nature of the institutions. And yet it felt like he kept coming back. He would acknowledge that there was something to that, but he kept coming back to no, but really, like, we're doing the same things that we've done before. And, um, and we're experiencing similar things. And, uh, and, and, and the, all of those things that one might think would really make a difference over the last century. Uh, and some of them obviously have the, the, the discussion of vaccines and treatments, right? That's obviously a, a totally new world. But, but that in so many ways, the continuities speak so much more loudly than the discontinuities. I, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I had never thought about social distancing being a very old idea and that there are practices that people have engaged in um, for a long time to ward off disease when they didn't have all of the all of the modern medical tools that we have um, that are still, in many ways, our, our first line of defense. And of course, we're using them now just as people have used them in the past. They're unfamiliar to us and we haven't ever thank goodness, had prior need to use them in our lifetimes, but they are tried and true, and they're, they're an important part of our arsenal right now. Yeah, and it's, it's striking also the, the, the differences in how we're using them, right, and how the stories about how different localities responded differently in the past. And um, you might think, especially given, you know, national governments, international institutions, uh, the, the rise of public health in, in the 20th century, that the local response wouldn't matter as much today. And yet we're seeing uh, that it really does and that it still seems to be making the kind of difference that it made in 1918 when, you know, some cities had their parades and others didn't. And uh, we're still seeing that play out uh, uh, very publicly and very visibly in, in the, the way the pandemic is spreading. And in some ways, I think that's one of the most hopeful and also one of the most worrying things about it, because on the hope side, you know, individual decisions that we all make can make a big difference and decisions that individual localities make can make a big difference. You know, I think on the more worrisome side, um, as Christian noted, microbes don't respect boundaries. And so coordination uh, could be a, a really important tool in trying to fight this problem. Um, but but we can feel like we're making a difference in in our own backyard, maybe literally by staying in our own backyard, we can make a difference. <laughs> yes, uh, I think that's right. And I think also, you know, it's it's not only about our locales or our, our governments, it's also about our institutions. And, you know, from where we sit in a law school and a university, we've really watched uh, universities and colleges and educators around the world responding in similar ways to try to, uh, to, to disperse their people and continue their missions, but doing so remotely to try to protect not only the folks within our own communities, but the larger public health. And, um, you know, we've all been, been working on this within our, our own context. Um, and it's, I think it's so important to lift our heads up and listen to Christian and, and think about the, 
the larger global and historical context in which this is all happening. I completely agree. And and we're doing it, the law, the law school's doing it, the university's doing it, along with universities across the country and schools across the world and different types of businesses and enterprises and institutions across the world. And um, we're, we're all focused on how to make it work, right? In our case, how to continue education um, at, at a distance through online learning. And, and there are lots of operations questions that go along with that. But the operations here, really, they are operational questions, and we can get our hands around them. And we're doing that in the interest of um, forestalling much larger public health issues that that we're all looking at, and we're trying our best to mitigate them. And it's nice to be reminded that we're doing this all together and that it's exactly what people have done in the past. That's it for this episode of Common Law. Join us next time when we'll return remotely for more stories about when law changed the world. Until then, we hope you and your loved ones stay healthy and safe. If you have time, tell us what you think. Rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you hear the show. To learn more about this episode and others, visit us at commonlawpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at CommonLawUVA. In two weeks, we'll be back with our next guest, UVA Law Professor Saikrishna Prakash. He'll be discussing his new book, The Living Presidency, about the rise of presidential power. Common Law comes to you from the University of Virginia School of Law. Today's episode was produced by Sidney Halliman, Robert Armengal, and Mary Wood with help from Virginia Kane. This show is being recorded on our iPhones. I'm Leslie Kendrick. And I'm Risa Golubuff. Be well, and we'll see you next time.